Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. This week, what I want to do is to pick up a couple of questions that I've been asked uh, both recently and in, term, in uh, the case of one of the questions, I was asked it also a few months ago. And as you know, one of the things I want to do on this podcast is to pick up questions that people ask that I may or may not be able to give an answer to there and then, whether it's by email or face-to-face, but which I think might benefit other folks if the answer's got something of a broader airing, because perhaps they're subjects that other people are thinking about as well. And so today I wanted to scoop up a couple of them off my to-do list. I've got a bunch of uh, little items on there that, uh, that say podcast, colon, and then a question from somebody in the congregation and the name attached to it. Uh, the first question concerns what is biblical femininity? came in from a couple of ladies in the congregation. I've been talking with each other and with one of their husbands about this and wanting to get some guidance and thoughts about that. And the other, somewhat unrelated really, is a a question about a biblical doctrine that will be familiar to any of you who've done much reading in Reformed theology, the doctrine of divine impassibility, which means the, the claim made by many in the Reformed tradition, which is the biblical claim that God does not suffer at least he doesn't suffer in the way that creatures and people do. So we'll take tackle them one at a time, and I'll give you some thoughts on each of them. Uh, quick caveat as usual, uh, in uh, as always with questions of this sort, most questions, in fact, you're not going to get a comprehensive answer in the sense that there'll still be questions lingering afterwards, and especially in relation to the first question, the question about godly femininity. I'm not even going to try to give you a complete answer for reasons that will become clear. But I hope nonetheless that the answers will be helpful to you and help you to sort of chew over uh, how to approach uh, these questions to the extent that they're things that you mull over and think about. So let's think first about Christian femininity. What is godly Christian femininity? Well, actually, for that matter, what is godly Christian masculinity? Uh, And that raises a, a a point that's worth beginning with about the background from which this question has come. Uh, In our particular small corner of the Reformed world in recent decades, we have, by God's grace, been rediscovering the significance of distinctively masculine and feminine uh, roles in relationships, family life, in the church, and so on. And so one of the things that we've been forced to wrestle with and think through is, okay, well, for the ladies from whom this question came, what does it mean to be a distinctively godly female believer in Christ, as distinct from the character traits that are required of all Christian people? It's quite easy to search the scriptures and find lists of character traits on which to meditate. We think of the fruit of the Spirit, for example, Paul's letter to the Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, guide kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can find lists like that and chew them over and there are devotional books about that and so on. But what do we do about the distinctively female or distinctively male character traits that we might feel we ought to try to cultivate in order to fulfill our callings distinctively as men and women in the church and in the family and in the workplace and wherever else? I think it's a really good question and there's been a fair amount of reflection in our circles on this in recent years. So what are we to make of this? Well, I want to make an observation about the form that that reflection takes and then make a suggestion about how we might try and do a better job of constructing a picture of godly femininity and therefore of godly masculinity. The process is actually quite similar for each of them. The way that this teaching 
tends to proceed is by a process of abstraction. What I mean by that is somebody says, well, what is godly femininity? And by contrast, what is godly masculinity? They might say, well, we look at uh, Ephesians 5 and we notice that there's some stuff about husbands and wives and uh, the stuff about husbands, let's call that masculinity, that uh, emphasizes character traits that we might describe as uh, leadership and initiative and self-sacrifice, whereas the feminine side of the coin, so to speak, is, we might say, uh, responsiveness, uh, submissiveness, uh, service of a different kind. And I think that's all very helpful, and certainly insofar as it gets us looking at the text of Scripture, it's really helpful. But, but do you notice what's happened? What we've started to do is to generalize femininity and masculinity into uh, abstract descriptions. Take an example of um, submissiveness. In um, many contexts, you'll find uh, that women are uh, called um, encouraged to be submissive, let's say, to their husbands. And I've got my Bible here, my little tiny Bible, still waiting for my big one to come back from the Bible repairers. Um, but you get this in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And what you find is therefore... Uh, in an effort to encapsulate this teaching, people will fix on uh, an abstraction, really, like submissiveness. And you see the problem that arises. Um, it's not altogether obvious, once we detach that from its context in Scripture, what that abstraction means. It clearly means something, and perhaps uh, by reflecting on uh, what Paul's writing here, we might be able to come up with a more detailed sort of sense of what it means. But I want to caution against the idea of seeking just to generate an abstraction in the first place. I want instead just to pause and think, well, hold on, where does Paul get this from? And what other resources might we bring to bear to create for ourselves a much more detailed and deep and rich and textured and nuanced and fulsome picture of just that one character trait, never mind all the other character traits that we might think go into godly femininity and then godly masculinity. I want to suggest that instead of fixing our attention in the first instance on the narrow one-word abstractions, let's say submissiveness for uh, a wife or uh, servant leadership or initiative or uh, uh, courageous self-sacrifice for a husband. Instead of doing that, what we try to do is to create a much more detailed picture of all of the sum total of all the character traits that Scripture depicts in godly women from beginning to end. 
instead of starting, in other words, with just like a one-word thing, let's begin with the backdrop that Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 5 assumes in his writing. He's going to start right back at the beginning of uh, Scripture, and he's going to be reflecting on uh, all of the things that Scripture teaches about godly femininity, and therefore, in some cases, also about ungodly femininity, and producing a much more detailed composite picture of what that character trait involves. And so just think about how you might do that. Well, for a start, it's going to be much harder than just starting with uh, one word, because you've got to start with you know, 1,200 pages of Bible. But as soon as you get into it, you're going to discover that there are tremendously rich resources there for you to reflect on. So just be imagine beginning with Genesis. And you start with the account of uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And you can see now why, uh, in answering this question, or trying to speak to this question about uh, godly femininity, I'm going, to, I'm going to scoop up the question about godly masculinity as well. Well, you think about um, how... Uh, Adam and Eve were made for each other and what scripture says about them and the task that we've got is what well, to begin with just to read that narrative of the creation of the woman in Genesis 2 uh, 18 down to 25 and just reflect on the details of what that says about how men and women ought to relate to each other and then you get to chapter 3 um, and I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that what you've got in chapter 3 is a failure of godly masculinity and godly femininity. Um, and so you're reflecting on that as well. So what's happening in chapter 2? Um, uh, the man's alone and it's not good that he should be alone and the, the woman is made to be a companion to him. And so you're just reflecting on that and thinking about it and um, Allowing the scriptures to create in your mind the beginnings of a larger composite picture of how a man and a woman in this case ought to relate. And then in chapter 3 you see it's starting to go wrong. Um, Adam is clearly present with his wife while she's being deceived. But he doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. Notwithstanding the fact that he was the one to whom the command was given. Presumably therefore he had the responsibility to teach and to nurture and encourage and to guard and protect his wife. You see a failure there of how he ought to have behaved. Now, what's the danger at this point? We abstract that and say, well, it's a lack of initiative. Therefore, what's required in a godly man is initiative. Well, yeah, that's true. But you see what we've done. We, we've got to the abstraction, which is helpful to a degree, but we've got to it via the details of the text that give depth and content to it. Allow your mind to focus on the details of the narrative itself to fill out that picture of what, in the case of Adam, uh, initiative should have been. And of course, in the case of Eve, what uh, submissiveness and responsiveness should have been. Can you see what I'm suggesting? In other words, we start with the diverse, complex data of scripture. And yes, that's going to generate the kind of abstractions and syntheses that we see in Ephesians 5. But it will do so by providing us with a much richer, more textured, uh, uh, more detailed backdrop of scriptural data. And that's just Genesis 2 and 3. You think you work through, uh, think of the narrative of uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah. Uh, Sarah is a remarkable character. 
extraordinary uh, woman, really. And, and that emerges from detailed and careful reading and reflection on what she does, all of the strengths of what she does, all the good things she does, all of the foolish and misguided things that she does, and reflecting also on what later scriptural texts in the New Testament say, what, what, how the later authors reflect on what she'd done. And again, you just carry on doing that through Genesis. You do it through Exodus. You start with um, Exodus chapter 1. You think, well, it's interesting. Um, in Exodus chapter 1, you've got uh, a man, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and you've got two women, Shifra and Pua, who are the uh, senior Israelite midwives. Well, isn't that just a fascinating little cameo that you've got there of how that man, who's a tyrant and a bully, interacts with these two uh, courageous, shrewd, thoughtful women who fear the Lord more than they fear the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Um, now, of course, you could you could reduce that to principle and courage and uh, fearing God. And maybe it's helpful to do that kind of reduction or abstraction to those more uh, impersonal terms. But only if, I want to suggest, you've actually got in the background the full and rich scriptural picture from which those terms derive. So the challenge for you, and I know this is now me, me answering a question that you gave me by giving you homework to do, is to, the, the answer to the question, what is godly femininity, is best found not by beginning with the abstractions, but by, beginning, but by beginning with the rich, complex, and diverse data of Scripture from which the abstractions are generated. And as you do so, you'll get the, um, you get the answer to the question, well, what does submissiveness mean? You'll get that thrown in because the content will be already there in that rich and complex biblical picture. Now, just one note um, about this. I... This question uh, about godly femininity is asked not just by married women, but by single women too. And in what I've said so far, uh, I've been flitting back and forth between talking about women in general and wives in particular. Likewise with men, I've flitted back and forth between talking about um, men in general and husbands in particular. And I want to suggest that that's inevitable, given what scripture says, in all of its richness and depth and complexity about the kinds of creatures that men and women are. Right? If you think about it, we're made for relationship with each other. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that somebody who's not married is missing some ontologically determinative aspect of their being. Of course, single people have a precious and valuable role in the life of the church and uh, uh, a uh, wonderful, they're in God's image in themselves and so on and so forth. I think I've talked about that enough before that nobody's going to be uh, mis going to misunderstand what I'm saying there. But um, there is a sense in which uh, one of the things which uh, we want to bear in mind, even as single people, uh, single men and women in the church, whether or not your future is to be married you don't know probably you might be engaged and pretty certain therefore you're going to be married at some point soon but even if you're a uh, you're a single woman aged 17 18 20 25 or a single man at whatever age um, the character traits of godly masculinity and femininity will at the very least coincide to a large degree with 
the godly the, the the character traits of godly wife and husband to put it another way if you're single one of the things you ought to be thinking about is at least preparing for the possibility of marriage and in god's wonderful providence even if you don't get married the preparation you will have undertaken will make you a godly single woman and a godly single man you can see that very readily can't you just just take um I take one example just from what we've um, looked at already um, imagine a different world in which uh, adam in genesis 3 instead of relinquishing his responsibility to care for his bride actually took a responsibility and fought off this evil serpent embodiment of satan himself well that would make him a great husband right i mean that would make him a much better husband than adam was but if such a man had that, those character traits, but had never got married, he'd still be a great man in the sense that he'd be the kind of man who would take initiative to uh, teach or lead or care for those who were more vulnerable or in need of such care and leadership in other relationships within his life. So uh, I hope that's helpful and uh, encouraging to those men and women listening to this who may not be married and thinking, well, how does all the stuff about married men and women kind of apply to me? Well, it applies in those two ways, both the preparation for the possibility, and who knows what your future holds of marriage in the future, but also uh, what will make you a great wife or husband if you do marry will make you a great and godly single woman or single man if you don't, uh, at least in many of those character traits will. So that's really what I'm suggesting. Um, I'm not giving you an answer to the question of what is godly femininity or, and then the corresponding question, what is godly masculinity? What I'm giving you is a path to walk towards the answer. And I recognize it's a long and complex path and so that's just too bad. Um, uh, you weren't expecting a simple answer, right? Uh, but the answer is going to be as complex as your life is and as rich and deep as the word of God is. And the word of God is very rich and deep and your life is very complex. So you weren't wanting a simple answer anyway, were you? Right, didn't think so. So good. I hope that's helpful a little bit, even though it's now given you a bunch more work to do. Okay, so uh, enough on that. Um, now the next question that came in, bear with me one second. Pardon me, if you're listening on the audio, that was just me having a drink of water. Uh, was about the doctrine of divine impassibility. And there's some questions about this from a couple of people. So what is impassibility and uh, why do our confessions teach it, which indeed they do, uh, and what should we think about it? Well, the doctrine of divine impassibility is, very roughly speaking, the claim that God does not suffer. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is without body, parts, or passions. And uh, passions is the English word from which um, uh, impassibility to which impassibility is, is related. God, God does not uh, suffer the kind of uh, emotional or the, the kind of emotional ups and downs or the kind of changes to his internal state that human beings do. And it's really striking if you look at classical and patristic and reformed accounts of the doctrine of God that they almost unanimously will say that God um, doesn't have a body like ours. Well, that's kind of obvious. Uh, 
Um, he doesn't have parts like us. God is just who he is. Um, the technical term is he is simple. And specifically, uh, he is without passions, without these kind of emotions which are driven by the things that go on around uh, us. We have emotions and passions and feelings which are driven all the time by things that happen around us. God isn't like that. Now, what are we to make of this? And why is this a question that even arises? Well, the reason it arises is because all over the Bible, <coughs> pardon me, you see and read accounts of uh, events which seem flatly to contradict this in relation to God. God is said to rejoice. Uh, God is said to change his mind. God is said to relent. God is said to be grieved. God is said to be made sorrowful, to be made angry, um, to be pleased or not pleased, um, and so on and so forth. So scripture depicts God in this way as, as we sort of live in time and space and we look up at God and so on. And scripture describes what's going on in him as though he does have passions and yet our creeds and confessions say that he doesn't have passions so what on earth's wrong with our creeds or really our confessions not so much our creeds uh, and how are we to understand the claim that they're trying to get at here well i need to say at the outset to answering this question that the the text of scripture just on the surface has been enough to lead some people to outright reject the claim of uh, the confessions that God is without passions. And I want to say that's a mistake, but it's a mistake that goes quite deep. And again, I don't know how um, comprehensive and detailed I'm going to be able to get in this kind of context. But let me give you a sense of, of uh, how it is that the confessions and our theological forefathers and betters arrive at the claim that God is impassable without passions. And then maybe you'll, um, you'll start to, to see why I think it's important. We need to begin, if you don't mind, with the doctrine of creation. Now, the doctrine of creation has lo loads and loads of tentacles, loads of implications. But one of its central claims is that all matter and all space and even time itself is created by God. It comes from God, not in the sense of being an emanation from him, like something that comes out from him, but it derives from him which means that he is not constrained by it. God is not physical, though he did create physical things. God is not in space, though he did create space. And he's not in time, though he did create time. Rather, what we need to think of is that space and time are this kind of four-dimensional, because three spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension, um, uh, domain in which all the physical things that have been made by God exist. And God is not in that space or in that time at all. Now, I don't know how you want to picture this. Uh, I, I have a bit of a background in um, uh, physics, and so I, I find it, I guess, slightly easier than and some people might do to picture four dimensions, but um, I find it much easier to picture three dimensions. So if you just imagine uh, ignoring one of the spatial dimensions for a moment, just imagine that the world is flat, so there are only two spatial dimensions, but then time is like a, th a third dimension, so that the, the whole of history is like a, um, 
a two-dimensional picture which changes gradually through time, but the time axis is like a third spatial axis. So it looks like this kind of long, thin worm or sausage, and the, the direction of the worm, I'm making all these gestures if you're watching me on video, is in the direction of time. Well, that's a three-dimensional equivalent of the four-dimensional space and time that we actually live in. And God stands outside it. He's like, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got all our three spatial dimensions, but he's also got this temporal dimension in his hands, and he's not constrained by any of it. Now, what does this mean? Well, first up, what it's going to mean is that whatever it is that God experiences, he's not going to experience in the same way that we experience it. He is going to be standing apart from and standing outside all this stuff. And we, by virtue of the fact that we're inside it, we, we experience all of our feelings. Uh, we experience the passing of time in the way that created things do. God doesn't experience anything in exactly the way that created things do. God doesn't persist through time. God doesn't change through time. God doesn't move through space because he's not in space and he's not in time. At the same time, no pun intended, one of the other things that the doctrine of creation establishes is that there's a kind of relationship between the stuff that the created world is made from and God himself. After all, where did the created world come from? It came from God in, in the same kind of way that let's say a painting or a composition of music might have come from an artist or a great composer. And so the created order reflects something of the character of God, uh, just as a composition reflects something of the character of the composer who composed it, or a painting reflects something of the character of the uh, one who painted it. So where have we got so far? Okay, so God is outside of space and time and history, he doesn't experience time or succession of moments, and he's not in space at all. But those things that are in space and time do bear some resemblance to him. So now what do we do with our descriptions of God? Well, all of those things that are in the world that God has made have been put in the world specifically because they reflect something of the character of God. This is a crucial insight that connects the created world to the character of God. Now, it's not true that God is exactly like any of the things that we see in the world around us. These are created things. He's different from that. He's the creator. And yet at the same time, there's some kind of analogy between these created things and the creator, just as there's an analogy between the painting or the piece of music and the artist or the composer. The artist is not the same thing as his painting. He's a different order of being, but you see something of the artist in his painting, and we see something of the uh, character of God in the things that he's made. So then, what is the doctrine of divine impassibility supposed to be claiming? Well, really, it's simply the claim that 
God isn't in this space and time and subject to all of the uh, surprises and changes of mood and emotion that we experience as we go through our lives one moment to the next. And God can't be passable in that way because the only way you could be passable in that way is to be in space and time, which God isn't. But then let's ask the question, okay, so God is outside of time, outside of history, outside of space. What does God feel, quote unquote, about the things that are in this space and time and history? And let me tell you, he feels exceedingly passionate, quote unquote, scare quotes if you're watching on video, about them. God is um, rejoicing with the angels in heaven over a single sinner who repents. What does that mean? Well, look, as he contemplates this four-dimensional history from creation off forever in the time direction, because there's no end in the time direction in this four-dimensional universe that God has created, as God looks at the moment when one sinner repents, God experiences something to which our experience of joy is analogous. But he's not experiencing it in the way that we're experiencing it. It's not that on Tuesday he woke up and hadn't expected John to get converted and then John was converted and we're like, well, we're John's next door neighbour and we're really thrilled and delighted. We're, we experience passions in that way because we are taken by surprise by the things that happen in creation. We're moved by the things that happen in creation because we're subject to them. And so we experience passions as creatures. Now, God isn't moved by the things that are in creation in the sense that they're outside of him, that outside of him and bear upon him, so to speak. He's the one who gives rise to them. He gives rise to them, though, as the God who feels passionately that divine analogy to joy when he's contemplating that moment that that sinner repents. But notice, remember again, you've got to try and hold all this together in your mind. God's outside of time. So as God contemplates the moment on Tuesday when John repents, he's also contemplating the moment where Christ gave his life for John's salvation to cover his sins. He's contemplating the moment of his creation. He's contemplating the moment when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's contemplating events in our lives. And he's contemplating events in our future. All of time and space and history is laid bare before God. God experiences all of that space. God is intimately close with every particle, every atom in the universe, at every moment of time for its existence. And God experiences eternally, without being in time, all of the divine passions that are appropriate to his contemplation of those things. But it'd be foolish to say, therefore, that God changes through time. God experiences passions in the sense that we do, because God is outside of time and couldn't, can't actually do that, because that's not the kind of thing that God can do. So that is 
what the doctrine of divine impassibility is aimed at. It's aimed at affirming that God doesn't experience the kind of emotional responses to events in time and space and history that creatures do because creatures live in time and space and history. It's not, the doctrine of divine impassibility is not an affirmation that God is unmoved, that God is dispassionate. We shouldn't imagine the doctrine of divine impassibility as saying God is like a kind of stoic rock, just sitting there uh, unemotionally contemplating the whole of his creation. He's like a rock in the sense that he is steady and stable, but he's not like a rock in the sense that uh, he doesn't feel emotions. Actually, to say that God is like a rock in the sense of being emotionless is to project another aspect of created existence wrongly into him. God doesn't sit there not moving through time like a rock sits there not moving through time for the simple reason that God doesn't move through time at all. Remember, God is outside of time, outside of space, and outside of history. So one paradoxical consequence of this is that because God is outside of space and outside of time, he's actually infinitely more passionate in the divine sense about everything that happens in space and time than we ever are or ever could be because he's passionate about everything all together and at once in this divine timeless eternal moment of experiencing all of creative reality all at the same time quote unquote he's not in time but all at the same kind of timeless moment he feels that deep burning sorrow and uh, grief at the refusal of some to repent at some moments in this history that he contemplates, at the same time that he experiences the burning, passionate joy for those who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And he feels this burning love for uh, his creation and for his people and so on and so forth. And he experiences all of it in this uh, timeless, eternal, so not, not bound by a succession of moments, uh, uh, existence where he can contemplate everything all together and at once. All right, I'm not sure whether that makes anything much clearer, but maybe it gives you some stuff to chew on. It, it, uh, it isn't an easy thing to uh, contemplate uh, in any detail how it is that God experiences uh, anything at all. Um, but while well, I had a go, and if that makes things more confusing for you, then perhaps somebody will um, email me with a bunch more questions. Uh, if enough of you email me or call me or grab me after worship or something, then maybe this will become a another Wednesday night Bible study series, or we'll talk about it in some other context. But uh, nonetheless, I hope that gives you a sense of how it is that God experiences passions and how it is that he doesn't experience passions. He doesn't experience passions in the way that we do, being moved by the creation in ways that are outside of his control. He is eternally passionate, quote-unquote, in a divine sense, about his creation. And that's why... Uh, scripture describes him in that way. All right, enough for me, I think. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. Hope it's been helpful. The Lord bless you, and bye for now.